0: The average person lives 77 years. That works out to 28,000 days, 670,000 hours, 40 million minutes. The average person spends 40 minutes each day on the telephone, that's 20 hours a month, 10 days a year, two years out of your lifetime. Some of you are the ones that raise that average up quite a bit you ruin the curve. The average person spends one hour in the bathroom every day, 20 hours per month, 10 days per year, two years out of your lifetime. The average person spends 26 minutes a day getting dressed. (laughs) Thank you for doing that. (laughs) 13 hours in a month, seven days in a year, and one year out of your lifetime. The average person watches three hours of television a day. That's 90 hours in a month, 45 days in a year, nine years of your life. And the average Christian spends less than 10 minutes each day with the God of the universe, the truest friend, the Savior of the world, the creator of time. That works out to less than six hours per month, less than three days a year, and less than seven months out of your entire lifetime. You do the math. <laughs> I remember when I was in fourth grade, and we were looking at how old we would be, the year 2000. And I thought I'd be in my mid-40s. I thought, there's no way I'm going to live that long. <laughs> we imagined what life would be like, and we talked about how technology was None of us even conceived of such things. Well, Dick Tracy had those wrist phones, so I guess we're finally reaching the technology of Dick Tracy cartoons, but none of us envisioned the Internet or computers and things as they are. But we did know that technology was going to make our life a lot easier, and we were sure. I was told in fourth grade that by the time I was an adult, we would only need three work days because technology was going to do most of the work what happened? In fact, we're working harder, we're working longer, we're more frantic, we have little margin in any area of our life. What has happened? See, the problem isn't that we don't have the tools to live a simpler life. The problem is that we are the ones that are broken. And in fact, as we're gonna to learn today, time itself is somehow broken. And as God's people, it's part of our calling to help bring time back under the reign and rule of Christ as the gospel of the kingdom is lived out through us. And so today I want to start by taking you through, just to help you understand how we got to where we are today, why we are prisoners of our schedules and our time by doing just a very brief history of time and space The Bible has two tellings of the creation of the world and of you and me, our race, through two different lenses. Genesis 1 is very stylized. When we went through our study of the biblical narrative, you may remember that. You may be interested just to go back and listen to that and get a sense of how we're supposed to look at Genesis 1. It is about God creating, but there's other things for us to see in it. And then we get to Genesis 2, and that's actually when the historic narrative language kicks in. John writes his gospel in a way that intentionally mirrors the book of Genesis. His biography of Jesus begins as a metaphor where he captures the whole story in this image of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were created by him. John intentionally invoked Moses' first book. And while we get in debates about whether or not Genesis 1 is to be taken literally and there were seven real days or not, we have to understand that Moses was not writing in a day when he was competing with geology. His competitors were not scientific textbooks. His competitors were the origin stories of the rest of the cultures around him. And he is intentionally using stylized language, almost poetry, but not quite. And at the heart of that language in the first chapter are words related to time. Then we go to chapter 2. There's a very dramatic change in the Hebrew language. And from there on, the rest of the story is clearly meant to be history. And when he retells the creation account in chapter 2, he gets right down to God's interaction with man. That's about space. So what we really have are two tellings of the creation of the world through two different lenses, one through time and one through space. And what it helps us understand is that God created both to be sacred. Let's talk about sacred time. What we have is this cadence that occurs. Creation happening in six days and on the seventh God rested. There is an intentional cadence of threes. There are two segments to the six days. In the first three days, God is forming, creating the domains of his creation. And in the second three days, he is filling those domains. Each time there is a creative day, the number of that day is only mentioned once. And at those third days, there is a double act of creation. It's an exclamation point. We're meant to see something in the cadence and in the rhythm. Then, when God finishes his creation, he mentions the seventh day three times. Seventh day, on the seventh day, on the seventh day, God rested. So what you have is this cadence of time. One, two, three, one, two, three, seven, seven, seven. It's a waltz, actually, isn't it? Church made the waltz outlaw for many centuries. <laughs> God wrote it into creation. <laughs> it's a dance. One, two, three. one, two, three. Seven, seven, seven. And the emphasis is the last number. seven. On the seventh day. God rested. The Shabbat, the Sabbath, was not just the end, the pause that refreshes the day off for God. The seventh day was what everything built towards. You see, we've confused Sabbath as a a time when we legalistically don't let ourselves do things. I remember growing up, and Sabbath had become the day I hated, not because I didn't like church, but because I couldn't play and I had to stay in a suit I had to keep my tie and my, my dress pants. I'll never forget, in junior high, I went to visit a friend, and my mom let me bring blue jeans. We used to call them dungarees. I'll never forget. I felt like I was you know, getting away with something. I hope God doesn't find out. I'm wearing jeans on Sunday. Sabbath became this thing that we enforced. It's a solemn day. That's not how God intended Sabbath. Sabbath was God relishing the work of his hands. Resting as in finding satisfaction. A better way to think of Sabbath is celebration. So what you see is that God, in the first chapter, created, and then he celebrated. And the party is the big deal, seven, seven, seven. And he created us for that very cadence. Being created in the image of God, we are creative, And our life is meant to have this cadence through which we create and then celebrate. Celebrate as in cherish what God's given us. Enjoy it. Dance with God in his creation. We were meant to have productive, fulfilling work because we were part of what God was doing. And then we were meant at the end of that Season of work to pause with him and celebrate the work of his hands and our hands as we work for his glory. That's what we were created for. And the emphasis was on the celebration. Everything else built up to it. Say those numbers with me. One, two, three. One, two, three. Seven, seven, seven. How's your week matching up to that lately? We move into Genesis chapter 2 and God also created sacred space. The garden represents the life we were meant to have where we in intimacy with God dance that dance. God walked in the garden and humanity with him. It's where God joined us. Not just the garden. We were to fill the earth. The whole earth was meant to become sacred space as we Create and then celebrate where we as the children of God bless him by making more of the earth as he gave it to us to be stewards of and to bring our creative force into it. It's a, it's a beautiful thought, but it's nowhere near the life you and I are experiencing every week. And if this were a sermon where I just said, hey, find time to take a break, it's important. You would say, "Ah, where where in the world am I going to fit that in? So this isn't about finding more time, because in reality, we all get the same time. We have enough of it. The problem isn't that we don't have enough time. The problem is we have become captive to both time and our broken nature as a race. Even technologies that should make life easier just give us more reason to make it complicated. We just screw it all up. And consequently, we are prisoners of time. That's what happened in Genesis chapter three. Time becomes our enemy, right? What is the result of man's disobedience? Well, Paul summarizes it in the book of Romans when he says in chapter five, sin entered the world. And this is the important word, death through sin And as soon as death entered the world, time became our enemy instead of our friend. And we became desperate to get the most out of that limited life that was the result of our fallenness. That wasn't what God intended, but that's what we have left. Death puts an end to the time that we have here on earth. And in Genesis 3, we see God's own words when he said to them, from dust you are, And to dust you will return. And from that point on, from that point on, the work that was meant to be creative and joyful has been labor. And time to celebrate has been robbed from us. We did it. And the result can be clearly seen in Psalm 90, and that's what I want you to turn with me today. Psalm 90. We're going to just read the whole psalm. And now that I've brought you up to this point to think about what time and life was meant to be, just consider the frustration of the psalmist when he looks at the limits of our life and the limits of our time, the 90th psalm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He begins by acknowledging the eternality of God from eternity past, eternity present. But you turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night but you sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. What a contrast. For God, because he's eternal, even a thousand years is like a day, but our experience is like the grass of the field that comes up, refreshing by the dew, but by evening it's gone and withered. It's a pretty depressing thought here. Let's read on. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Listen to this. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. We know the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. So up until this point, he's just simply acknowledging what our fallenness has created. God is eternal. We were meant for that, but somehow we live under the weight of death. Life is hard, and then we die. And if it weren't for the fact that above it all there's an eternal God, we would all be nihilists. We would all be nihilists. There's no purpose, no meaning without an eternal God. But because the psalmist begins with the acknowledgement of eternal God, even in the acknowledgement of the frustration of the limitations of this life, as he moves towards the end of the chapter, he reaches to that God, verse 12. So teach us to number our days right, that we may gain a heart of wisdom, Relent, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen trouble May your deeds be shown to your servants your splendor to their children. I love this this ending May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes establish the work of our hands. I find it phenomenal That the use of time, the use of time that at one point was natural to us, now is something we have to learn. We have to be taught. We have to cry out to God, Lord, teach us. Teach us the way it was meant to be. Show us how to number our days right so that we can flourish under your goodness and the work of our hands can be reestablished for your glory. That's the cry of the song, and it needs to be our cry. Don't accept the schedule the world has sucked you into, that you think you have to do. Don't accept the list of things that you think your kids should be a part of because everybody in the neighborhood's a part of them, and you can't imagine how they could possibly succeed without being a part of everything. Don't get caught by the lie that comes from a world that is dead, We all need to be crying, Lord, show us, teach us how to number our days right, because time is our enemy. Now, we jump forward centuries. Through the word that became flesh, dwelt a while among us, and then bore our sins on the cross so that that moral brokenness, that sin could be forgiven and we could be restored to God. This 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. In other words, what we were intended to be, what God meant us to be, In relationship with him is restored. The old is gone, the new has come. The Greek language there speaks about new creation as though it's an entirely new type of being that has never been before. I met Malia before she came to Christ. She was sweet then, she's sweet now. But today she's an entirely new being because Jesus Christ transformed her from the heart. Her sin was forgiven, and she is in a dynamic, flourishing relationship with God. She's a new creation, and she and her mom, Deborah, are being baptized tonight. We are new creations. And then he goes on and describes that because of that, not only have we been reconciled to God, but we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, which begins by our reconciling others of our race to God, but it doesn't just end there. Our job is to reclaim this world. Your kingdom come, your reign, the basileia, the reign of God come to this world. And how does that happen? Your will, the way you meant life to be, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's your and my job as ministers of reconciliation, which means besides people, We're supposed to reconcile time and space back under God's rule by reclaiming it in our individual lives. Now go with me to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul, describing this new life, uses the terms of time to challenge us about the regular decisions that we make that, as we talked about last week, don't jive with the intentions that we profess. You know, I love our worship here. I love singing the way Carla just led us into God's presence thinking about heaven. I just love that. I love how we nobly say, Lord, all I have is you. But all of us know those grand intentions and the day-to-day choices are not reconciled We fall short of being reconciliators because we're trapped by the wrong day-to-day choices. So when Paul talks about that, just verses 15 and 16, this is what he says. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now in the NIV, which is the version that we use for purposes of study in the beginning of verse 16 it says making the most of every opportunity does anybody have a king james version or a new american standard version here today okay what does that word say bonnie what's that phrase redeeming the time time. paul literally says redeem time and the word for redeem is the exact same word he uses that speaks of our redemption in christ redemption means to buy back from slavery So Paul is actually saying part of our work as those who are redeemed, the redeemed, we have been set free. We need to set time free by how we live. Redeem the time. Three points just quickly related to us and time. First, he says spend your time very carefully. Be very careful. Give careful attention to how you live, not as the unwise, but as the wise. I think we don't pay enough attention. I think we let our lists dictate our days. I think we let other people's expectations, I think we let social peer pressure dictate and rob time from us, rather than recognizing that time is a commodity over which we are God's stewards Time is money, and you're supposed to spend it wisely. Be very careful how you live. Pay careful attention to it. And then there's that phrase, redeeming the time. And to me, that is use your time as God intended. That's part of our job. Now, I don't live in a vacuum, (laughs) I run out of hours in every day just like you do. And so I understand that what we're saying here sounds very noble, but life is busy. Life is really hard. I'm not naive about that. What I'm telling you is if you don't put the first things first in your schedule, you will never find room for them. And here's something else I want to challenge you about. When it comes to how you fill your days, in the end, you actually do what you want to do. You say, no, I don't, I don't. I want to spend more time with God. If you really wanted it, you'd do it. Don't tell me you want to spend more time with God when you do other things instead. Those are really what you want to do. No, I don't make those choices. Yes, you do. No, my kids require this. No, my neighbors require this. No, my own needs, that's not my choice. Yeah, you do what you want to do. And even if there's areas where you don't have choice and you just have to do them because we all have those, that's not where time robs from you. You do what you want to do. If you don't prioritize the right use of that time, then you'll never redeem it. Now let's deal with another part about this. We might be saying, well, (laughs) if I stopped all this stuff I'm going to be different. If I, if, if I have my kids actually do less than all the other people are doing, what are people going to think? Yeah. To do this may mean some radical change. It is revolutionary. But if we're not the ones that start, how can we hope for people to see a difference in our lives? In the end, the reason why there's fewer Christians in New England than there were 200 years ago? Why we are the least churched region in the United States? In the end, it's simply because we show absolutely no difference to the world. We're just like them. They don't see the difference because we're not making time for the difference. We need to use our time as God intended. And then he ends with this phrase, because the days are evil. Now, traditionally, we look at that as uh, the end times, right? It's going to get dark before Jesus comes. Even so, Lord Jesus comes. But Paul is intentionally using the language of time in this passage. And what he's literally doing is reminding us that we live in a broken world where days literally are evil. Not just what's done during those days, but days themselves. Time itself is being held captive to sin, all of creation, and time is part of God's creation, all of creation longs for the day when God returns and brings complete and full restoration. And until that day, it's our job to bring that restoration through how we live. So the third point is beware of the pull of our culture. How we use our time quite literally needs to be at times countercultural. And I believe when we do it right, when we learn to create and then celebrate, with the emphasis on the celebrate, being in God's presence with God, celebrating, serving, rejoicing, I think that's when the world says, I've got to have that. I've got to get off this merry-go-round. Let me join the dance with you. That's the dance God created us for. And when you and I start dancing it, people will want in. They will want in. So I just have three quick things to challenge you on a practical level related to this. How do we take some very noble, wonderful ideas? I'm moved by them. I hope you are. I hope you're challenged as well. I want to give you some practical things just to think about doing, reaching for this big life together, spending time wisely. First, I'd like to challenge you to make a study of your time. I have several times in the last 20 years taken a survey, kept a log of my week in 15-minute increments. I probably will do it again. In fact, I commit to doing it again if you'll do it with me. Just log your time. Each time I have done that, I have been amazed at where my time goes. And I have been able to recognize that there's plenty of time that I can redeem So I'm going to challenge you to do that. One very practical way you can begin to be a reconciler for the kingdom of God by redeeming time, setting time free, is to actually with me keep a log of your next week or so. I dare you. Let's let God use that to open our eyes. Anybody willing to take me up on that? Good for you. Let's do it together. And then once that's done, I want to challenge you to liberate a sacred time Block off sacred time that is yours and God's. And that sacred time needs to be more than just devotions because the life of God is much bigger than that. It's about time with God. It's about time with his people. It's about time in community. It's about time being the hands and feet of Jesus. I believe there's time for all of us for that. There's plenty of time. We just need to free it up from where it's trapped in our lives. And then I want to further challenge you to create... A sacred space. Set a space in your apartment, or if you only have a room, one part of your room, where in some way you designate that as your place with God. I know it's just symbolic, but I think it's very important. You have a space where your Bible is, maybe a candle, maybe, maybe um, a favorite uh, Christian author, maybe a, a carpet for kneeling, in prayer, something that you create that evokes the sacred, that when you go to be with God, you go into that space. Everything you see, everything you sit and touch and feel reminds you that this is here so that you can open up yourself to God's presence. I'd like to really challenge you to do that. I think if you did that, it would transform your, your time with God. You would long for that space. You would find yourself running to it the busier life gets. Supposedly, Martin Luther said, I'm so busy today. I have so much to do. I've got to spend at least three hours first praying. I'm not sure he said that, but it's not bad. (laughs) It's not bad. Let's redeem our time. Let's say this together. Lord, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom establish the work of our hands, yes, establish the work of our hands. Just bow in prayer, or just look at that verse for a moment and make it your prayer, and let's just commit ourselves to redeeming the time, even as God has redeemed our hearts.